Fintech Insights special podcast featuring guests' expertise from sister publications Pinksheet and HBW Insight. I'm Medtech Insight Managing Editor Marion Webb. In June, the U.S. Supreme Court took the historic action of overturning two foundational rulings asserting Americans' constitutional right to abortion, namely the court's landmark 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade and a 1992 case that reaffirmed Roe Planned Parenthood v. Casey. This effectively returns rulemaking power over this contentious issue to the states. Already, a number of states have legislation in place, so-called trigger laws, to ban or restrict abortions, and other states are advancing their own legislation in response to the Supreme Court decision. This makes for a highly fluid situation with a patchwork of laws rapidly developing across the U.S., and there are bound to be legal challenges ahead that further complicate matters. Meanwhile, there are eyes on the Biden administration, which issued a related executive order on the 8th of July, as well as the Justice Department and HHS, all of which will have roles going forward as this new architecture for reproductive health care takes form in the U.S. So as of now, there may be more questions than answers as to what the future holds. But there are clearly some immediate implications for FDA-regulated sectors, including medtech, pharma, and OTC drugs. With me today are senior editors from Sideline Insights, pharma intelligence publications that cover those industry, respectively Medtech Insight, Pinksheet, and HBW Insight. From Pinksheet, we have Brenda Sandberg, from HBW Insight, Malcolm Spicer, and joining me from MedTech Insight is Elizabeth Orr. Brenda, let's start with you. You've written about the implications of Roe v. Wade on the access of the abortion pill mifepristone, which may come into play in those states where abortion is now banned or criminalized. So what can you tell us about efforts that are taking place to provide or even increase access to the abortion pill? The Biden administration has been scrambling to do something to protect women's access to a reproductive health care. One of the things they focus on is uh, increasing access to Mifepristone. Uh, on June 28th, HHS Secretary Xavier Becerra held a press briefing at which he said the administration would increase access to the drug and ensure that states may not ban its use based on, and this is the phrase that he used, and it's rather crucial, based on a disagreement with the FDA's expert judgment about a drug safety and efficacy. But he didn't give any specifics on exactly what the administration would do to increase access. And then on Friday, President Biden issued his executive order entitled Protecting Access to Reproductive Health Care Services. And the order said that Becerra, the HSH secretary, is to submit a report within 30 days identifying potential actions, including actions to protect and expand access to medication abortion. The situation is urgent. Abortion is now banned in at least 10 states, and it's soon to be banned in many up more. And there's there's a lot of frustration that the administration is being very slow to act and very, very cautious. Becerra said at the press briefing that the administration was not interested in, quote, going rogue and would stay within the confines of the law. But it, many want 
the Biden administration to take bold actions and reporters, abortion rights activists and others have thrown out suggestions on what it could do. And one reporter asked if the FDA could speed up the process for pharmacies to get certified to dispense mifepristone. And I asked FDA what they were doing to increase access, and and the agency responded by noting what it had done in reviewing their risk evaluation and mitigation strategy and changing it so that mifepristone could be received outside of a clinic or hospital. One could receive it via the mail, whereas the REMS had required that it be only be dispensed in a hospital or clinic or medical office. And at that time, in December, when it revised the REMS, it also added a requirement that pharmacies dispensing the drug need to be certified. So the agency didn't say what it would do to increase access to mifepristone or respond to whether the certification process would be speeded up in any way. And then on Sunday, Biden told reporters that he has asked his administration to consider whether he has the authority to declare an abortion-related public health emergency. And it's unclear what impact declaring that would have. Minnie Timamruju, the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America and a former advisor to the Biden administration, said it in an interview with Chris Hayes a couple of days ago that such a declaration could say that unfettered access to medication abortion is critical to public health and clarify what FDA's role would be. The administration could also go to court to fight state laws that are banning or restricting access to mifepristone. Becerra said HHS is also working with the Attorney General and the Department of Justice to prevent states from banning the drug. But the administration uh, also could argue that federal law preempts state law and states don't have the right to ban an FDA-approved drug. So right now, the groups are engaged in numerous legal battles over state laws to restrict access to the drug, um, including prohibiting the mailing of pills and barring the use of telehealth. One company that is in litigation is GenBioPro. It's a it sells generic mifepristone and it's challenging Mississippi's restrictions on the use of the drug, saying that they go beyond FDA's risk evaluation mitigation strategy and thus can conflict with federal law and are mm-hmm. preempt. So Becerra was asked if the DOJ would support Jen Barrow in this suit, and he didn't really respond one way or the other. So there's a lot that remains to be seen what FDA, HHS, and DOJ will do to help people. That sounds like it's a very fluid situation indeed. So Elizabeth, you also spoke to an attorney who specializes in technology to women's health or Femtech, as it's also called, about some of the implications of the Dobbs ruling. It's not just a matter of women gaining access to abortion pills that may be impacted, but access to intrauterine devices and other contraceptives may also become an issue. So what did the attorney tell you? Well, it's interesting because, as you noted, it's really going to depend on the state to some extent, is what Bethany Corbin told me. main question is that some states are going to want to pass laws that define life as beginning at conception. And if life is defined in that way, then some forms of birth control, for instance, IUDs, that may prevent an egg from implanting would theoretically be forms of abortion. You know, and you know, this is something where it sounds extreme, but it is a common reading of the laws. And as we've all seen with laws in this area in general, there tend to be a lot of unintended consequences. 
And so that's something that many people are concerned about. The other thing that we talked about is health data privacy. You know, if you're using a menstruation tracker or a fertility tracker, that's a lot of very personal data on your phone. And unfortunately, some app developers do sell to law enforcement. So those are sort of the main concerns. And, you know, it also spills over into other areas because if women do not trust or do not use things like IUDs or things like period tracking apps, that impacts the quality of the data that is available to people looking at those things. So Elizabeth, you and I both spoke to Bethany Corbin, who is the attorney with Nixon Guild Law that specializes in technology related to women's health. And I had a follow up on your story to talk about femtech apps, in this case, period tracking apps. And she said, yeah, it's definitely a concern for companies and for women And this issue came up because she said that a lot of women are now wary of using these period tracking apps because they are afraid that down the road it may have implications for them, especially women that are located in states where abortion is banned. So I asked her, what advice do you have for companies to safeguard data and make sure that it's secure and private? And she had a few pointers. So she advises companies to create a data map that shows every type of data being collected, how it's entering the system, where it is being stored, the exit points of the data. Because that allows companies to get a real-time picture into their data collection, storage, and disclosure processes. I also spoke with one company in that space. They're actually located in Europe, Natural Cycles. And the CEO told me that the company wants to create a totally anonymous experience for users so they can't be identified. So among the other pointers that the attorney recommends, she said it's important that they're transparent how their data is being disclosed. And she also advises to restrict the sale of data as much as possible. A lot of these femtech apps sell data to data brokers, and that could become an issue because once the data leaves the platform, the company loses control over what happens to the data and leaves open the potential for law enforcement to grab the data from a data broker that they may otherwise need to get a subpoena for in order to have access to it. She also recommends that companies should review their privacy policies to make sure that they are completely transparent in how they collect, use, and disclose data. And then finally, she advises companies to invest in industry standard cybersecurity measures and cyber insurance. So health data is already in high demand. And she said that that type of sensitive data is becoming much more valuable, especially in states where abortion is illegal. So if cyber criminals are trying to access that data, that uh, it could become a, a really dangerous situation here. But let me move over to you, Malcolm. So barriers to OTC per or over-the-counter purchases of emergency contraceptives persist in the U.S. and they have been persisting for more than eight years now after a court ruling rebuked an Obama administration decision to continue age restriction on non-prescription sales. What have you seen so far in terms of the impediments? Thank you, Marion. And uh, what you've explained just now, along with Elizabeth and Brenda, uh, is really, uh, for me personally, fascinating. But also, it, it shows all the all your examples show the possibility for healthcare benefits for women 
in what's possible through drugs and devices that are available and what's possible through uh, regulatory changes, but also your explanations show what's possible as far as the detriments that come from opponents to those changes and uh, possibly from uh, data problems too and data security, that is. So uh, I I would have more questions just to hear more about what you uh, three of you have shared have uh, explained to us. But uh, as far as your question, uh, you know, let me preface my answer by saying that FDA certainly applies no more or no less scientific scrutiny to approving birth control drugs or devices than it does to any other type of products it regulates. However, there probably are no other products under its regulatory oversight that have as much uh, political sensitivity attached to them and cultural and social sensitivities too. So that is like a framework for how the the FDA operates here. Uh, Certainly, that's not are going to be officially acknowledged by the agency. However, anybody who follows the agency and has some sense as well as knowledge about how it operates knows that, that there are more influences on some decisions than others, and there are more outside influences on decisions about birth control products than perhaps any other. Uh, having said that, you know, it's uh, coincidental, this timing, that uh, just uh, this week, July 11, uh, HRA Pharma uh, submitted a, uh, in- a new drug application for an OT switch of Oh, 0.075 milligram norgesterol, and uh, which is no longer in RX uh, distribution, but is you know is still an approved RX drug in the U.S. You know, I say a coincidence because that's less than two weeks after the uh, decision in the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Jackson. And uh, which gave heightened interest to access to all forms of birth control. Uh, I don't think HRA, I'm certain HRA did not plan this. They, uh, the company would have submitted their NDA as soon as they were absolutely certain they had everything in order, all questions FDA asked answered. And so it just happened to be coincidentally that they're submitting it now. Yeah. I think what FDA went through and what it put stakeholders through with the emergency contraceptive, the plan B dilemma. Oh, Malcolm, would you mind giving us a brief overview of plan B? All right. Yeah. The plan B. Thank you, Marion. It was available RX, a an advisory committee uh, unanimously or near unanimously recommended making it OTC and in a very rare thing, FDA, rare, not certainly not unheard of, but rare, FDA said no. So then some advocacy groups led by the Center for Reproductive Rights went through litigation. And uh, as they were litigating, the original sponsor of the Plan B uh, switch application returned to FDA with a voluntary change to acquire behind the counter, behind the pharmacy counter distribution of Plan B and limit sales to persons 18 and older. And so that was voluntary. FDA cannot acquire those things. It can, it can approve those things, but it cannot acquire those. So FDA approved it. And uh, it was 03 when FDA initially uh, denied it and then uh, rejected it. And then 06 when uh, FDA approved it. And But litigation continued because that wasn't the intent of making emergency contraceptive drugs available non-prescription. It wasn't to limit it to you know behind the pharmacy counter or by age. And eventually in 2012, through several, if I describe them now, curves, you would be hard to believe, but through several curves from the federal agencies, finally, through court order 2013, formulations approved for non-prescription sales were ordered to be available OTC. That hasn't been the end of it. Some states still discourage their sales and some pharmacy chains and pharmacists individually do not like to uh, sell 
them uh, for their own reason. So to say that emergent contraceptives are available OTC is only partly correct. There are some areas where they are difficult to get for anybody. So where do you see the impact of the Supreme Court ruling on emergency contraceptives, especially in states where abortion has been banned or is in discussions of being banned? And then I also wanted to ask you about the company that you mentioned that just filed an application to get their contraceptive approved um, OTC. How long does that process typically take? And what do you think the impact will be given this new Supreme Court ruling here? Okay, I'll answer those in, in the best order I can, Marion. Thank you. Uh, I'm certain FDA will not acknowledge any urgency and or pressure to decide on an OTC or, you know, to to lean toward making it available OTC because of the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs. However, where it's going to get this application is for a switch is going to get more attention, not only from uh, you know, we in the industry press, but also from yeah. the commercial press because of the timing. OTC switches are subject to the Prescription Drug User Fee Act deadlines. Although it's for an OTC drug, the, the drug being considered is still RX, so they are subject to that act. And that act requires uh, an actually an eight-month deadline for an answer from after an application is submitted. However, it takes FDA two months to file the applications and, notif and notify the sponsor that it is actually considering the application, evaluating it. So it actually is a 10-month deadline. Ten months from July 11, we and you know consumers and everybody should by then know what FDA's decision is. That could be interrupted by some additional questions FDA might have from the sponsor which could stop the clock. However, we all, absent any uh, turns that we don't expect, it should be 10, within 10 months from now. As I said, when I started, FDA does no more or no less scientific scrutiny for this than any other OTC switch. Yeah, yeah. However, you know there are bound to be some discussions that influence their decision about whether daily birth control should be available over the counter. Whatever a person's or a group's reasons are, those reasons are will surface and they will have to be considered valid unless, of course, they're totally off base and will have to be considered in the decision. I really think the bottom line is that all medical groups, including the, you know, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, as well as the American Medical Association, which is generally all doctors, they are behind an OTC switch. And all special groups within medicine are behind an OTC switch because Because it makes no sense for safety and efficacy sakes to limit it to uh, to RX sales only. It's uh, one thing I think in the sponsor's favor, HRA's favor, is that they may have, and I, I'm working on determining this, but I do not know yet, they may have uh, made their application with some additional conditions of use included, meaning that in addition to the drugs fact label on the drug, just like we see for a bottle of aspirin, customers... Consumers are going to have to access digitally other information that they would basically in the form of questions that they would have to answer to basically allow them to buy that product. Yes, it's still OTC, but they, you know you have to have a digital okay, a digital pass of some sort to buy the product. I would think that this would be an ideal candidate for such a additional conditions of use platform. However, I, I do not know and hope to find out soon. So that has that in their favor. As far as HRA, and thanks for asking about them because it, you know HRA itself may have been kind of lost in all the noise here. They're a very accomplished, small but very accomplished uh, French company. They already have OTC approval or non-prescription sale approval for a daily or contraceptive in the UK. It's a different ingredient. It's desodrestel, 
I may have pronounced it incorrectly and I apologize. And that's, I think that's interesting using that in the UK, but they're not using the same ingredient for their switch in the US. Another question I hope to find out more about. They also, in 59 countries other than the US, they market emergency contraceptives. Again, it's a different ingredient rather than the US emergency contraceptives use. Uh, so they're, uh, you know, very accomplished. And it was certainly Perigo acquired them in a deal that closed earlier this year. And certainly that, that probably is the, although not the largest, will be the most important acquisition Perigo will ever will make as terms of becoming a, a more substantial pharma market uh, entity. And so one other thing, if I may add, uh, uh, Perigo's uh, American slash U.S. Uh, OTC president is a former FDA official who worked in the Office of Non-Prescription Drugs at one point. I think that has Jim Dillard, that, that has to have helped in making sure they dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's just exactly as FDA wanted before they submitted that application. Yeah. I think you mentioned some of the benefits and organizations that are behind this effort, or I should say that would back making oral contraceptives available OTC, but there are also opponents of allowing these types of sales. And what are they saying? Uh, yes, there are opponents, and it's not just limited to consumers or certain interest groups, but there are states, state lawmakers who uh, who oppose it. And, uh, you know, I, at the risk of being undiplomatic, you know, and untactful, it's simply it's a matter of morals in their view. I spoke with, with several people on the OTC uh, NDA story, and they're saying that's the only reason, you know, that for some reason there are people and groups who simply do not think that women out of wedlock should need birth control or emergency contraceptives, or any any woman, actually, should mm -hmm. be. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, I, I, and, I, and I feel terrible even saying that, honestly, but uh, that's what their position is. And actually, if I could kind of defer a little bit from that, you, I'm sure you three are aware that Judge Justice Clarence Thomas in the Dobbs ruling, in his concurring opinion, said that he wanted to, re, you know, he wanted to receive cases that reopened other decisions which it would include Griswold, which was 1965, which which made access to birth control legal. Mm -hmm. Previous to that, a state could bar it. You know, whether we're talking access simply to not only to OTC, a potential OTC access, but also to existing drugs that are available RX. That may come in question if some groups can find a case that has some constitutional muster that gets before the Supreme Court. So we've covered a lot of ground here, Brenda, with Mifepristone, Elizabeth talked about some of the implications for IUDs, and I briefly discussed what I've learned from an attorney about abs, and obviously you, Malcolm, have your hands full talking about uh, OTC switch of contraceptives. So I'd like to ask the three of you, maybe in closing, what is your agenda for coverage as this as these issues unfold? Where are you planning on heading next in terms of coverage? Um, well, I'm going to be watching for state laws that cover a lot of legal issues. So it will be interesting to see if there are any laws enacted or any challenges to laws already enacted that affect birth control availability in specific state. And there's also um, a company that I spoke with called Femesis that is developing a contract contraceptive that works in the fallopian tubes, which if it gets through the FDA approval process would offer an option that does not involve preventing a fertilized egg from implanting. So those are just a few things that I'll be looking at. Great. What about you, Brenda? Well, I'm looking to see exactly what 
HHS and FDA do with regard to increasing access to mifepristone and also whether or not um, they'll get involved in litigation that's being waged over state laws, the state laws that are banning the use of abortion pills and laws that are, have been introduced to restrict the mailing of pills or the uh, use of telehealth. And those those restrictions have been introduced in several states. And there's a question of whether FDA and, and the Biden administration can argue and the DOJ can argue that federal law preempts state law and they'll, they'll be able to make headway in fighting these laws. Yeah. Malcolm. Thank you, Marion. Brenda's mention of states reminds me that we are trying to uh, put together a a comprehensive profile of what current state laws or state rules are about uh, access to uh, daily uh, oral contraceptives. Uh, Some states, I think the number is perhaps 15, including the District of Columbia, allow pharmacists to dispense the Rx drugs without a prescription. However, some states will limit that to a standing order, uh, which is a list of patients' names that that a doctor gives to a pharmacist to allow those patients to have uh, those drugs without prescriptions. Uh, So we're working on that. Uh, Some people mistakenly refer to that as non-prescription or over-the-counter, and it's not. It's still prescription, but it's just an allowance that some states allow pharmacists to do. Other than that, I'm I really want to concentrate on the science behind the FDA's decision and behind the uh, the application, too. Uh, as much as I can really uh, talk to uh, – I have an interview scheduled with somebody from HRA to talk about you know, the results of, of trials, uh, actual use trials, et cetera, uh, that went into this and the safety of Norgestrel versus uh, Desodrestel, which, uh, which HRA uses in the U.K., because I think there's a lot there. It's, I say that because we talked, I, I talked a lot about other things besides the science today. That those will affect this decision by the FDA. However, you know, we write we our first. My, I think my first responsibility is to write about the science, the science of the business of food and drugs. Right. So, uh, thank you. Yeah. No, I want to thank all three of you for this wonderful overview of your work on this issue as it continues, and for the vibrant discussion here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your time today, for your great work, Elizabeth, Brenda, and Malcolm. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>